Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison, and I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. I want to start this podcast, though I have a bunch of cases to talk about, I want to start with some uh, news developments. Uh, First of all, the recruitment and retention crisis on the police front is becoming even more acute than you thought it might be. Uh, Of course, here in Portland, we're at ground zero for that. Uh, Roughly, we have an authorized strength of about a thousand police officers in Portland. Uh, In fact, we are at about 810 or 820, uh, simply because we cannot hire people to become police officers here. But Portland is by far not the only place. Uh, Last Friday, and I'm talking now about this happened on June uh, 25th, Salt Lake City announced that it would be giving some fairly eye-popping raises to police officers, nearly 30% for entry-level officers and 12% for senior-level police officers. Why? Uh, Simply the case that there's not enough of an attraction for young men and women to become police officers in the city, given everything that is going on with policing. And so what the mayor of Salt Lake City is hoping, uh, and this is a mayor, uh, she is a fairly conservative Democrat, much like the the mayor in Boise, who's also uh, a fairly conservative Democrat, both of them very supportive of policing. And what both of these women are hoping is that the raises that they give will keep their police forces sound and well-staffed. Now, as we move around the country talking about uh, recruitment and retention, uh, let's go to Oklahoma and Tulsa. Tulsa's another city that has had an extremely difficult job, uh, both recruiting and retaining police officers. There was a news article a couple of days ago that talks about how difficult it is for Tulsa simply to hold on to people who have Uh, hired on as police officers. Uh, The story talks a a lot about different individuals and what their accounts were, but the raw numbers are that the Tulsa Police Department already this year has lost 12 mostly young officers who cited either family pressures or moving to the private sector or in some cases uh, moving to federal jobs. Uh, There's even an article, even an article in what's known as the Cape Cod Times. Uh, I, by the way, could pick from easily 50 recruitment and retention articles around the country in the last week. But the Cape Cod Times one, I think, illustrates a very particular type of problem that exists in many cities. Uh, And that is, as our housing markets around the country have become so robust, as houses are worth 100% more today uh, than they were five or 10 years ago, first responders are simply being uh, placed out or priced out of the market. Uh, the headline to this article uh, is that the shortage of first responders highlights the staffing difficulties on the Cape. And there's a long interview with the chief of the Yarmouth Police Department who says, look, a police at the wages we pay, simply cannot afford to live in this city. So the recruitment and retention crisis marches on. It is getting worse. And I don't think anybody is has come up with a really good solution for it. Because at the heart of this particular recruitment and retention problem, unlike any others, uh, what we have are uh, police officers deciding and potential police officers, they do not want this as a career. It's not just people who are retiring. It's not just that there's a robust job market and so applicants have a lot of different choices. Although both of those are true, we are in a bit of a retirement bubble because 
Uh, 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, we were in a bit of a hiring bu bubble thanks to all of those federal funds that came out of the Clinton administration once upon a time. Um, it is also true that we are in a good economy, but those two factors don't come close to the fact that a, the people who are leaving policing are looking at the environment in which this job is, is being performed today and are simply saying, no, thank you. Uh, I don't want that. And we don't have a good answer yet unless we change the national discussion about policing as to how we're going to handle that problem. And it bodes ill, right? Because as we are unable to recruit and retain police officers, what is going to be one of the likely strategies adopted by cities and counties? Uh, it's going to be to reduce standards so that hopefully we can hire more people. You know, certainly that's been done in, in my home city of Portland where we've lowered the minimum education requirement from a bachelor's degree to a GED uh, all around the country. Law enforcement agencies are re-examining uh, uh, hiring standards in terms of whether or not someone who has been convicted of a crime can become a law enforcement officer. There are cities in this country right now where being convicted of a felony is not automatically disqualifying to be a police officer. I mean, it's just a, it's a extremely, extremely difficult challenge. And what we have to do to start addressing it is we kind of start talking about it more openly. Uh, police administrators in particular have to be going vocal with their local media and the national groups, uh, the IACP, uh, PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum, and, and certainly the national labor organizations such as the FOP, they need to be focused very much on recruitment and retention. Okay, so that's the first of the news articles. The second of the collection of news articles that I wanted to talk about is that where some cities are sort of, and counties are sort of musing out loud, should we make COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory for our public safety employees? Uh, some agencies are apparently now starting to do it. Uh, on June 26th, the city of San, San Francisco announced that it was going to require all, put that in quotes, all of its employees to get the COVID vaccine. Uh, why did I say all in quotes? Because the city of, uh, in San Francisco is going to be making the statutorily obligatory exceptions uh, for people who have a disability that is inconsistent with taking the vaccine or people who have bona fide religious beliefs that would be inconsistent with taking a vaccine. Very few people in either of those camps, by the way, there's some strict standards that, as to how you get in either of those two exemptions. Uh, and it's not gonna be, I don't think, even 1% of the workforce uh, once we see these programs become full-fledged. Now, what are the unions saying in San Francisco? I haven't seen actually a response yet from the fire union or the uh, police officers association, uh, but there definitely is a response from a variety of the civilian unions, and they are saying, you gotta bargain over it. Uh, they're, they're also saying we don't particularly like it, uh, but they are saying you, you definitely have to bargain over this. Not a lot of case law on that, but the case law that is out there suggests that the unions are right and that a mandatory vaccination program, in fact, would be a negotiable topic. Uh, and while the San Francisco requirement is a citywide department for all city employees, clearly the focus in other places around the country, uh, the focus is on firefighters, law enforcement officers, and corrections officers. And the reason is all three of them work in close proximity with other individuals, um, members of the public, other employees, and all three categories of employees have vaccination rates that are substantially less than the vaccination rate of the public as a whole. 
And employers of public safety employees are looking at this situation. Uh, many are giving all sorts of incentives, time off incentives, even money incentives to get public safety employees vaccinated. Uh, but in the end, uh, they may well impose mandatory vaccination programs or try to uh, as simply a last resort particularly with the Delta variant that is uh, sweeping the nation right now and is, is clearly seriously attacking unvaccinated uh, populations. We're going to have a lot of fights over this issue. Uh, this was not the only mandatory vaccination story in the last week that I saw. Uh, there's another one that indicates that the Las Vegas Police Department is requiring vaccinations uh, for new recruits this one I have to look at with maybe a slightly raised eyebrow. The only source for it I could find was a publication known as the Epic Times, E-P-O-C-H, the Epic Times. You may not be familiar with the Epic Times. Uh, it, it's a fascinating story. There is a religious group. Uh, it is, it is ca characterized by most religious scholars as a new religion and not a sect. Uh, and it is called the Falun Gong. And they come out of China, the majority, the vast majority of the practitioners uh, around the world remain in China. It has been persecuted uh, very seriously uh, by the Chinese government on many occasions over the years. Uh, and members of the Falun Gong have spread uh, a bit around the world. There is an outpost, for example, in New York, uh, and they are the publishers of the Epic Times. The Epic Times has, in the last six, seven years, gone from being a relatively apolitical organization to moving to becoming a far, far right organization. Um, uh, uh, group and that is reflected in uh, the Fallon, excuse me, in the uh, what you read in the Epic Times. Uh, so uh, just by way of example, uh, when uh, President Trump first ran for office, uh, the group's leaders publicly stated that they believed that President Trump was, quote, sent by heaven to destroy the Communist Party. Uh, and uh, I, I see these publications from uh, the Epic Times from time to time. Sometimes they're accurate, sometimes I'm not. So I'm a little bit nervous that I can't find this Las Vegas story anywhere else. Okay, the third bit of news that I want to give you is that uh, last week, the Oregon legislature came back and passed part two of uh, police reform legislation. And part two takes a shot at disciplinary arbitration, takes a shot that I think in the end will effectively convert Oregon into an at-will employment state for police officers. So here's what the legislature did in Oregon. Uh, and it passed a suite of bills, uh, passed them all uh, on the, essentially the last day the legislature was in session, uh, barely any debate over them. Uh, most of them passed unanimously in the House of Representatives. Uh, in the Senate, you did have sort of a party line breakdown, uh, but not much of one. Uh, a number, uh, all the Democrats supported the police reform bills, and a number of Republicans did as well. Uh, of the bills, the one that uh, tends to binding arbitration, disciplinary arbitration, is Senate Bill 204. And we'll post a link to it uh, on the show notes associated with this podcast. And, and this does an awful lot of things. Uh, what it does to begin with is to say that arbitrators must uphold discipline unless a union can prove that the employer's decision was arbitrary and capricious. So that entirely changes the burden of proof in disciplinary arbitrations. Before, it's an employer's burden of proving that it has just cause for discipline. 
Most arbitrators would say the burden of proof was by a preponderance of the evidence. Some would say by clear and convincing evidence. In Oregon, all of that has changed. Uh, it is not the employer's burden of proof. It is the union's burden of proof. And the union doesn't just have to prove that the employer was wrong. It has to prove that the employer's decision was arbitrary and capricious, which means basically without any factual support whatsoever. So the employer's decision under this new standard uh, can be wrong, can be very, very wrong, and an arbitrator must uphold the employer's decision. And that's not all. The Employment Relations Board, not the parties, will be selecting arbitrators based on whatever criteria the Employment Relations Board uh, sets. There's going to be a new commission on statewide law enforcement standards of conduct and discipline. You probably know where this is going. Fifteen members, only four of whom are law enforcement officers, will serve on this commission on standards. What are they going to do? They're going to write guidelines and procedures uh, to which law enforcement officers must adhere. So in other words, they're going to write a statewide code of conduct. They are also going to write disciplinary standards and procedures. So they're going to be setting what the offenses are, uh, not just what the offenses are, but also what pre-disciplinary procedures will be used by an employer and they are also going to describe uh, the aggravating and mitigating circumstances to which all agencies, arbitrators, and civilian review boards must adhere. Uh, more than that, the Commission has the authority to get involved in individual cases and makes recommendations to impose disciplinary action in response to the findings of arbitrators and civilian review boards. Arbitrators are not going to be allowed to order any disciplinary reduction that differs from the employers uh, if the discipline somehow met whatever these uniform standards are going to be. And here comes one that, uh, if you listen to the words very carefully, will make your hair curl. Uh, and I'm just going to quote. It's only one sentence long. When the imposed disciplinary action is termination of employment, an arbitrator may not set aside or reduce the action if setting aside or reducing the discipline is inconsistent with the public interest in maintaining community trust, enforcing a higher standard of conduct for law enforcement officers, and ensuring an accountable, fair, and just disciplinary process. Okay, now I, if you read that very carefully, this allows a arbitrator or forbids an arbitrator from overturning discipline where the employer is dead wrong, 100% wrong. The employee did nothing wrong. An arbitrator will not be allowed to overturn that discipline if doing so is, quote, inconsistent with the public interest in maintaining community trust. What does that mean? It means if the public gets outraged enough about some police conduct, some police conduct that doesn't violate the rules, and the employer reacts to that mistaken outrage by firing an officer, the officer will not be able to get her or his job back in binding arbitration. Wow, awfully amazing and significant. There's an, another bill that was written, and I just, I just want to highlight this bill because uh, it really, what I think it does is to highlight the hypocrisy of uh, members of the Oregon legislature. Uh, this is one called House Bill 2929, and uh, we'll put this on our in the show notes as well. 
Uh, and this creates a duty to report where officers, and all of these, of course, only apply to police officers, officers have an obligation to report other officers to their employer. What do they have to report? You know, normally you see a duty to report if an officer becomes aware of the misconduct of another employee. Uh, and that duty to report has been embedded in employer rules forever and ever. This is a different duty to report. Officers must report another officer's, and I'm going to quote, violation of the minimum standards for physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral fitness for public safety personnel. Let me just read that again, okay? Officers must report another officer's violation of the minimum standards for physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral fitness for public safety employees. Now that's like crazy, right? You're going to have, if, if anybody complies with this rule, any agency complies with this rule, you're going to have one employee saying, you know, I don't think he's intellectually fit, or, or I don't think she's morally fit because she doesn't agree with my political point of view, or I don't think he's intellectually fit because he doesn't agree with my worldview on life. Uh, I, I mean, these terms are so sweeping, so broad, and they don't get at misconduct. There's no misconduct here. This is just reporting other employees that you think there may be something wrong with. So why do I say the hypocrisy of the Oregon legislature? We've got lawyers in the Oregon legislature who voted for this. My state representative is a doctor who voted for this. Um, let's take the doctor as an example. I wonder how she would vote on a bill that required one doctor to report another doctor's violation of the minimum standards for physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral fitness for physicians. Or a lawyer being required to report violation of minimum standards for physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral fitness for lawyers. I know, I'll pause for the jokes there about moral fitness of lawyers. I mean, this is an astonishing requirement. And actually, I think it may well be an unenforceable requirement, or it may become unenforceable if officers merely work to rules in which probably every member of a police department would report every other member of a police department. Uh, as being in violation of one of these minimum standards. Uh, we have a long way to go in Oregon to fix these problems. And in the meantime, let me come full circle to recruitment and retention. Let's say you're a 22-year-old college graduate and you've had a dream your entire life of being a police officer. Would you come to Oregon to become a police officer now? I think the answer is no way. And if, in fact, you decided you wanted to take the job under these conditions, you'd probably be in violation of the minimum standards for intellectual fitness as a public safety officer. Okay, that's it with the news. On with the cases. I want to start with a case out of Texas uh, because we we're just talking about mandatory vaccinations and and we have our first um, mandatory vaccination case involving those federal rules that deal with uh, medical products that come out under an emergency use uh, authorization. So. Uh, this is not a police or a fire case, not a public safety case, um, but I think the principles are going to apply. So uh, what happens here? This is a case involving 117 employees of the Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas. And on April 1, the hospital announced uh, we're going to have a mandatory vaccination program. 
Jennifer Bridges and her 116 cohorts file a lawsuit, and what do they do? They cite the uh, they cite all sorts of things, but they cite these federal statutes on the emergency use of medical products. And what these statutes say is, among other things, that they require the Secretary of Health and Human Services to ensure that product recipients understand the potential benefits and risks of use and, quote, the option to accept or refuse administration of the product. So what these employees are saying is uh, that at least implicit, if not explicit, in that federal statute is an exception that employees must be given the option to accept or refuse administration of a vaccine. A federal court judge uh, dismisses the lawsuit. And here's what the judge says about the argument based on the emergency use and emergency authorization statute. And I'm quoting Bridges, remember she's the plaintiff, has misconstrued this provision. It confers certain powers and responsibilities to the Secretary of Health and Human Services in an emergency. It neither expands nor restricts the responsibilities of private employers. In fact, it does not apply at all to private employers like the hospital in this case. It does not confer a private opportunity to sue the government, employer, or worker. Uh, by the way, don't uh, the judge used the word private there several times. Uh, the judge is not using that word in the context of private sector versus public sector. Everything the judge said would logically apply to the public sector as well. Uh, now, Bridges made a bunch of other arguments. There's a federal statute that uh, governs the protection of human uh, subjects. And Bridges makes the argument, hey, you know, we're being treated as uh, guinea pigs. Uh, and we are basically, as a nation, and certainly anybody under a, a mandatory vaccination program, uh, we are, in, in effect, we are participants in the trial of the drugs. Uh, and the judge dismisses that as well and says the hospital employees are not participants in a human trial. They are licensed doctors, nurses, medical technicians, and staff members. The hospital is not applied to test the COVID-19 vaccines on its employees. It has not been approved by an institutional review board, and it has not been certified to proceed with clinical trials. And in the end, uh, the court says, uh, look, you're not being forced to take this vaccine. Bridges, you tell, you tell me that you are being coerced uh, by threat of loss of your job. And the court says, quote, this is not coercion. The hospital is trying to do its business of saving lives without giving patients the COVID-19 virus. It is a choice made to keep staff, patients, and their families safer. Bridges can freely choose to accept or refuse a COVID-19 vaccine. However, if she refuses, she will simply need to work somewhere else. Slam dunk of a decision in favor of mandatory vaccinations under the emergency use provisions um, of the Food and Drug Act. Now, uh, the court didn't spend much time dealing with the exemptions that an employer has to have for uh, employees with bona fide religious beliefs or uh, employees with disabilities inconsistent with the vaccine. And that's because the hospital's uh, policies made those exceptions. So the court doesn't deal with those. And I've got to tell you, uh, I think that's the way these cases, and they're filed all over the country. There's a lot of money um, behind these cases. Uh, I think that's the way these cases are going to come out in the end. Uh, and not only that, uh, if you think about it, uh, by the time these cases get litigated all the way through the court system, 
the authorization for the use of these vaccines is no longer going to be an emergency use. It'll be permanent authorization. And the entire legal theory that Bridges and people like her are bringing, that entire legal theory will become a moot point. If employees want to resist a mandatory vaccination program, it's looking increasingly like the only way they're going to be able to do so is through asserting collective bargaining rights. And then whatever the bargaining process produces is whatever it will produce. Okay, while we're talking about religious exemptions, these cases actually do knit together a little bit. Once every few years, uh, we'll get a case involving a public safety employee uh, who says, I can't work on that day because that day is my Sabbath. Uh, and that day typically is going to be, or typically in the case law, is a sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. So the traditional Sabbath, the Old Testament Sabbath, if you will. I guess it's also the New Testament Sabbath for those religious scholars who are going to correct me. But at any rate, uh, occasionally you'll see Sabbath cases on uh, that deal with Sunday, but most often, for whatever reason, these are Friday nights to Saturday nights. Uh, and we have one of these cases that came up. It involves a fellow named Clinton Bloomfield, who was hired as a Newark police officer, uh, and he gets sent to the New Jersey State Police Academy. Uh, Bloomfield is a, um, a member of the Church of God and Saints of Christ and says that he practices Judaism. Uh, and I, I must confess, I couldn't find anything online about what the Church of God and Saints of Christ are or how a church practices Judaism, and the court's opinion doesn't explain that. But let's just simply accept uh, that the tenets of that religion do not permit him to work on the religion's Sabbath, sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. Well, that collides with the collective bargaining agreement between the city and Lodge 12 of the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, under the contract, officers work a 4-2 schedule, four workdays followed by two days off. And because of that the way that schedule rotates, you know, it's a six-day rotation, four on, two off, uh, but we have seven-day weeks. Uh, the 4-2 schedule necessarily would require Bloomfield to occasionally work on his religion Sabbath. Uh, during his recruit training, Bloomfield requested a number of accommodations from the city. Uh, in the end, the city denied the request. Uh, telling him, look, as a recruit, you've got to complete all mandatory training, and that means training that involves working days, afternoons, nights, weekends, and or holidays as required by the city. And that's certainly going to be true once you become a permanent police officer. Bloomfield fails to show up for his required training on a Sabbath, and the city fires him. Uh, Bloomfield then appeals to the State Civil Service Commission, and his essential argument is that the city had an obligation under what's known as the New, the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. Think of that as the New Jersey equivalent of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That it had an obligation to assign him to a schedule that accommodated his religious beliefs. And that dispute uh, winds up at the New Jersey uh, Court of Appeals. And the court ends up saying that uh, the city was justified in terminating Bloomfield. Uh, and the court focuses on the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, the court says, look, uh, we, we certainly agree. You, you as an employer, city, you have an obligation to reasonably accommodate somebody's religious beliefs. But you only have to do so if it will not cause you an undue hardship. And one, one piece of the definition of an undue hardship is if the accommodation would result in the violation of a bona fide seniority system or violation of any other bona fide provision 
of a collective bargaining agreement. In this context, what does bona fide mean? It means that it's not a disguise for religious discrimination. And uh, the court ends up saying uh, the city has the right uh, to follow the contract in this case. Uh, and I'm just going to quote from a couple of uh, sentences here. Witnesses explain the department's staffing needs, uh, the existence of staffing shortages, the manner in which filling staffing needs is governed and limited by the contract, and the need for officers to be available to work at all times due to the normal and unique safety concerns presented daily in Newark. In addition, the witnesses explain that permitting Bloomfield to use vacation time to accommodate his religious observance would violate the contract seniority and vacation provision. An accommodation which results in the violation of a contract provision is an undue hardship. And that is the way these cases come out routinely around the country. The big case in the country uh, is one, I, I believe the name of it is Balint, B-A-L-I-N-T versus Carson City. It's been a while since I looked at it, but at any rate, we'll make sure we uh, post the case in the show notes. Hopefully it is Balint. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reached precisely the same result. Reasonable accommodation does not include forcing an employer to violate a collective bargaining agreement. Okay, let's head on up to Maine, where we have yet one more failed lawsuit uh, brought by a law enforcement officer because of the officer's placement on a Brady list and the resultant, resulting uh, impact on the officer's employment. So uh, here's what's going on. And uh, the court's opinion anonymizes everything, anonymizes the officer's name, it calls him Richard Rowe, and doesn't even tell us what police department uh, Rowe worked for other than it's in Penobscot County, Maine. So uh, here, here's the story. During a polygraph exam that was conducted as part of his original hiring process, Rowe disclosed a number of things that he had not put on his application. Uh, he disclosed, for example, that in a prior job as a police officer, uh, he had personally used unclaimed knives stored at a police station, uh, and, he, uh, and that was in violation of the department's rules. Secondly, he disclosed during the polygraph that he'd been investigated by law enforcement and prosecutors for on-duty use of force. And third, he uh, acknowledged, and again did not disclose on his application, that he had been terminated from a prior police job for allegedly misusing a municipal credit card, um, even though he said the termination had been rescinded as part of a civil settlement with the employer uh, that was coupled with his resignation from the department. In spite of all that, in spite of admitting all that stuff in the polygraph, the department hired him and then a new police chief took over. And within a month, uh, the chief reviewed a report of Rose polygraph examination that had been given to the former police chief, and the chief decided that he had Brady material with this polygraph exam, and so he sent it over to the local prosecutor's office, the local DA's office. Uh, the chief also spoke to Roe uh, and told Roe what he was going to be doing and invited Roe uh, to file any sort of response that he, he might well uh, have to these allegations. Roe does fill out a form that he gives to the chief, uh, and then the chief sends along the response to uh, the prosecutor as well. And uh, the department, in the meantime, uh, is not taking any action with respect to Roe's employment, and the prosecutor is initially saying, okay, we have Brady information that we're going to have to disclose. But then within a month, uh, there's a new allegation of misconduct against Roe. Chief sends a second letter to the prosecutor, and in the letter says, Roe lied to me about an allegation uh, as to whether he'd been truthful on a probable cause affidavit 
uh, and the, the question on the affidavit was, did he attempt to photograph uh, the victim's injuries in the domestic violence, in a domestic violence situation? Uh, and the chief tells the prosecutor, Roe lied to me about all of that. The prosecutor responds by sending a letter to the chief saying, uh, you know what, we're, it's not that we're just simply going to disclose this stuff. We are going to be, quote, unwilling to prosecute cases in which Officer Rowe has involvement in the future. Uh, in response, the, the town fired Rowe, and Rowe then sued, not the chief, not the town, the prosecutor, and sued the prosecutor alleging due process violations under the U.S. Constitution and also the Maine Constitution. Uh, this ends up in a court of appeals. It's the First Circuit Court of Appeals up in Maine. And the court said, no, you don't have any due process rights here, Roe, because you don't have a protected liberty or property interest in the prosecutor's charging decisions. Uh, nor do you have a liberty or property interest in what materials are disclosed to criminal defendants or who the prosecutor chooses to call to testify at trial. All of these decisions, and I'm quoting, involve the prosecutor's discretionary judgment and independence, which are protected from interference. Roe cannot have a protected interest in something government officials can grant or deny in their discretion. Uh, and so the court dismisses the lawsuit. Now, there's one case that is out there where a law enforcement officer has successfully sued to have their name removed from a Brady list. And it's right up there next to Maine. It's in New Hampshire. And I think of it as called a being called the Duchesne case. And we'll post Duchesne in the show notes as well. Uh, and Duchesne is, this, uh, is in a very different procedural posture than this Roe case is. Roe's in federal court. Duchesne is in state court. Uh, Roe is seeking a determination that the, uh, the judgment of the prosecutor violated his due process rights. In Duchesne, it was something a little bit different. So here's the facts in Duchesne. Duchesne involves a couple of off-duty police officers who get involved in a fracas at a bar. And as a result, a criminal investigation starts and an internal affairs investigation start, starts. The local prosecutor decides that he's got a conflict of interest. And so he sends the criminal investigation over to the state attorney general's office. State attorney general says no criminal conduct. Uh, the disciplinary investigation moves forward and ends up with sustained findings for both officers uh, for two offenses, untruthfulness and inappropriate use of force. And they get a 30-day suspension. They weren't fired, believe it or not, but they get a 30-day suspension for that. Uh, their union appeals that in arbitration, and the arbitrator says, no, uh, there was no uh, inappropriate use of force. They were defending themselves in that bar, and they didn't lie about their use of force. Uh, overturns the suspension, finds no misconduct, and says, make them whole for back pay. And all seems well and good, right? Until the local prosecutor the one who disqualified himself because he thought he had a conflict of interest, now says, I'm putting him on my Brady list. And in New Hampshire, because of the name of a New Hampshire Supreme Court decision, it's not actually called a Brady list. It's called a Lurie list, L-A-U-R-I-E. Uh, and that case goes to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And the court decides that the it, local prosecutor violated the rights of the officers, kind of, sort of. But more what the court says is, look, we, the New Hampshire Supreme Court, we are the ultimate arbiters of what is fair, what is due process in the New Hampshire state court system. 
Here we have a final and binding decision in arbitration uh, that these two officers did nothing wrong. The prosecutor's not able to point to anything that indicates that that arbitrator's decision was wrong. This violates the due process that we think should permeate uh, the principles of our court system and orders the local prosecutor to remove them from his Brady slash Lori list. That's the only case that I know where officers have been have successfully sued to get themselves removed from a Brady list. And if any of you know of another case, I would love to hear it. Now that is, in my judgment, some of the cleverest lawyering I've seen on behalf of a, a police officer in a long, long time in, in the Duchesne case. And you know how hard it is for one lawyer to say that another lawyer is clever, but I've got to just got to do it here. That's a legal theory that I think 99% of us would not have thought of. And it is the only legal theory, to the best of my knowledge, that a court has accepted that has produced a result that an officer has been removed from a Brady list. I think I've got time to fit one last case into this podcast, and it's a quick one. It's a duty of fair representation claim that comes to us out of New Jersey. Uh, duty of fair, the duty of fair representation is the sole duty that a labor organization owes to its members. And I'll describe a little bit when I get into the holding of this case, I'll describe a little bit what the confines of the duty of fair representation, or DFR, uh, what those confines are. So this case involves a corrections officer. His name is Paul Leobi, and he works for the uh, Sussex County Sheriff's Office in New Jersey. He also happened to be president of the PBA, uh, which represented all corrections officers, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains employed by the Sheriff's Office. Uh, Leobi um, filed a grievance uh, when he was union president, saying he wasn't properly compensated for overtime uh, at the what's known as the special events overtime rate for a particular overtime detail. And he later demanded arbitration of his grievance on behalf of the PBA. Uh, however, a few months later, he was laid off. Uh, he, there was an economic downturn in Sussex County, and he was laid off from his employment with the Sheriff's Department. That means they, the union had to replace who the president was. And the newly elected president is a fellow named James Omick. Omick takes a look at the grievance and uh, decides he's going to withdraw it. So he sends an email to the arbitrator, Leobi, and the lawyer for the sheriff's office and said, uh, we are withdrawing this grievance. And uh, Omick's rationale for withdrawing the grievance involved both the costs of arbitrating the grievance as well as his own doubts about the merits of the grievance. Leobi, who knows what the duty of fair representation is, uh, files an unfair labor practice complaint against the PBA saying, uh, you wrongly withdrew my grievance. And a, uh, the New Jersey Public Employment Relations Commission ends up dismissing Leobi's claim. Why? Uh, the uh, Employment Relations Commission says the duty of fair representation never requires a union to arbitrate every grievance. Unions can make choices as to which grievances they're going to arbitrate. And they can take into account a wide variety of factors in making the assessment as to whether or not to arbitrate a grievance. And now I'm going to turn to the commission's opinion. Omic stated that the PBA does not support proceeding with arbitration and cited legal expenses as a reason for why withdrawing the arbitration is in the best interests of the union. Omic also explained that the PBA's interpretation of the contract was not compatible with Leobi's assertion that the contract supported the payment of the special overtimes rate for the particular overtime detail. Quote, based upon the above, we, have, we find that Leobi has not asserted facts that, if true, 
would establish that the PBA acted arbitrarily or in bad faith in its evaluation that Leoby's grievance was not likely to succeed on the merits and its determination that it was in the best interest of the PBA not to pursue the arbitration, but instead to bargain over the issue the next time the contract was open. Uh, and this is a very standard result in a DFR case. Uh, unions have a tremendous amount of latitude in deciding which uh, grievances to arbitrate and which grievances not to arbitrate. They can take into account factors, as we've seen here, like their evaluation of the merits of the grievance, the cost of pursuing the grievance, or other factors that are not mentioned in the Commission's opinion here, factors such as the impact on other members of the bargaining unit, or the, a concern about setting adverse precedent and how a particular contract clause is going to be interpreted, and many more. Unions have a wide range of discretion, and they're only going to be able to sue for breach, be successfully sued for breach of duty of fair representation uh, if they act arbitrarily and in bad faith. So uh, standard DFR case, standard DFR result, a uh, little bit uh, unusual in that it specifically calls out the cost issue, which is something that I think many unions don't understand, but a pretty, pretty standard case. All right, that's it for this podcast. I want to remind you of our two upcoming seminars, July 14th through 16th. Uh, we're going to be at the Embassy Suites in Nashville, Tennessee. We still have a few seats left. Uh, for this conference, which is on health and wellness programs for public safety agencies. What happened was the county uh, loosened up on its COVID requirements, so we were able to expand uh, the size of our group that can attend, and we do have a few seats left as a result of that. Uh, that's going to be an, a, a very interesting and I think informative seminar. Uh, I'll be there for the, the whole thing. Uh, we'll be talking about wellness programs and the law, and we'll be talking about model wellness programs, financial wellness, physical wellness, emotional wellness, relationship wellness. We'll be talking about wellness programs all around the country and why it is public safety agencies so desperately need to be focusing on wellness programs and why wellness programs are in the best interest of all concerned, employees, employers, and the public. In September, uh, we return to the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas for our seminar on grievances, arbitration, and past practices. And we'll be looking at things as, as wide-ranging as past practice and its impact on bargaining and, and the restriction it imposes on an employer's making midterm changes and mandatorily negotiable topics. We'll talk about social media rules and free speech issues, how arbitrators look at grievances. And to find out more information on either of these seminars or any of our seminars, just go to our website, lris.com. Well, that's it for the July 2021 uh, edition of First Thursday. I want to thank you for uh, joining me. This is Will Aitchison signing off.